You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hi, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. I think we're going to have to start doing these uh, weekly updates almost every day, given the amount of corruption that's being exposed on a daily basis here in Washington, D.C., by Judicial Watch. Uh, No one's doing more in the way of uncovering and challenging government corruption than Judicial Watch. We've got big news, the Manafort plea deal, uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation fight and dishonesty there, including a Judicial Watch ethics complaint against Cory Booker. Remember, I am Spartacus. Uh, Clinton email update, new lawsuits there. We had a court hearing this week on Bruce Orr documents. I'll tell you about that. And plus, I'm going to correct the record on Barack Obama's Benghazi dishonesty uh, in a statement or a speech he made earlier this week or over the weekend about Benghazi. So a lot to get into. Uh, first up, though, is um, I think I'll talk first about the whole Kavanaugh conflagration, uh, which is occurring almost as we speak here. Uh, you recall the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings last week had, uh, thanks to leftist disruption, an air of intimidation, lawlessness, and outright violence, uh, given the disruptions that were taking place and the violent resistance uh, to the police uh, trying to clear uh, protesters who were disrupting the committee hearings. Well, on top of that, you had Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, Democrat, who, you know, frankly, I remember when he first came into Washington, D.C., I thought he was a—I didn't recognize him to be some sort of uh, uh, dishonest politician necessarily of the left, just kind of a—he had been a mayor of Newark, and he just seemed like a seemingly, uh, relatively speaking, as far as Senate Democrats go, a level-headed politician. Well, he's gone off the rails uh, recently, especially since he seems to be wanting to run for president, which is all well and good. Uh, but you don't break the rules just because you want more political power. And that's what Senator Booker uh, wants to do. And uh, during the hearings last week, he made an absurd show of leaking uh, confidential records, or at least during the hearing, records he thought were confidential and covered by committee rules that prohibited their public disclosure. And he said, this is the closest I've ever come, I think, to my Spartacus moment, or I am, my Spartacus, I am Spartacus moment. Uh, which is just, I mean, just laughable. I mean, politicians of left or right who compare themselves to figures of, uh, uh, of uh, the ancient world like that, uh, boy, that's, that's a dangerous territory. So I'm sure there were many Democrats who rolled their eyes, and of course conservatives were, were uh, obviously pointing out the absurdity of the comparison. And of course what Berkeley was doing was he was violating Senate rules uh, which could require his expulsion if he's fined liable for doing so. So some Republicans pointed out that the Senate Ethics Committee may take a look at what he did, uh, and, uh, but nothing's been done. So Judicial Watch stepped up, and once again, it was Judicial Watch, not Congress, not any senator, not the media, not anyone else, who stepped up and filed the ethics compl- complaint against Brooker, who knowingly violated the rules in order to score political points, I guess in his quest for the presidency, or to make himself look strong in opposing uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And so the joke was during the hearing is that he thought he was releasing confidential documents, which were not in fact confidential. 
So he was made foolish then because he said, well, I may get expelled for the Senate for doing this. Well, in fact, he wasn't going to be because the documents uh, were allowed to be re uh, released. But subsequently, what he did was he started posting documents which were for sure confidential and which were not to be released onto the Internet. And this is what he says. Friday, September 7th. Weds, he says, I referencing the previous uh, time, I, re I broke committee rules by reading from committee confidential docs. That's what he admitted to saying on February 7th. And then on Saturday, September 9th, and the classification of many documents as committee confidential, which is a quote, is a sham. I, willful, I willfully violate these sham rules. I fully accept any consequences that might arise from my actions, including expulsion. And then he posted additional documents on a Dropbox that he called Kavanaugh hearing documents, and uh, all in violation of the rules. And I'll read you the rule. It's Rule 29, uh, Paragraph 5. Any senator, office, or employee of the Senate who shall disclose the secret or confidential business or proceedings of the Senate, including business, business and proceedings of the committees, subcommittees, or offices of the Senate, shall be liable if a senator to suffer expulsion from the body and if an officer or employee to dismissal from the services of the Senate and to punishment for contempt. So, if the Senate Ethics Committee is going to enforce the rule of law in its own body, they're going to expel Senator Spartacus. And so, uh, this is the problem that, and this isn't just like a political fight, and, it's, and we shouldn't care about it. When you have a confirmation like Judge Kavanaugh, who worked in the White House for President Bush, the documents concerning his activities at the White House are governed by the Presidential Records Act. Congress doesn't have a right to all of those documents because they're the president's documents. Uh, we have a separation of powers here in, uh, under our constitutional system. So do, you know, documents that are presidential in nature, as I'm trying to describe it, Congress doesn't have a right to. Now, eventually, they may become public in 50 years or so, uh, but as of now, the president uh, has a right to keep them. Now, Congress sometimes can get access to these documents because presidents want to cooperate, generally speaking, with the Senate confirmation process. But a condition of gaining access to these documents is to let them see what's in there. If there's an issue, you can discuss whether they should be confidential or not. But the decision as to whether they're going to be confidential or not relies on the president. In this case, it would have been represented as the President Bush. Senator Booker blew all of that out of the window. He blew all of that up. Because now, presidents, if they make documents available to the Senate, can't be assured that the law is going to be followed, that the rules are going to be obeyed, that their rights as president to confidential advice and having confidential documents under our constitutional system, are going to be abused. That's why the Senate had this severe rule that if you expose this confidential type of information, you could be expelled. So now the challenge for the Senate, every senator, is what are they going to do about it? Are they going to let the mob rule that took place at that committee hearing, and it wasn't just the mob rule in the back of the room where you had these disruptors who had to be removed 
in a dangerous situation by the police, but you have a mob rule approach by Senator Booker, who, by the way, was endorsed by other senators, including Senator Durbin in his lawlessness, in violating the rules of the Senate that allow our constitutional system to work. So I'm not naive as to what the Senate Ethics Committee might do with this, but this is a real conundrum for them because this is a guy, Senator Booker, who says, I'm willfully violating the rules here. He's pleading guilty even before the investigation begins. So what you need to do, or what I suggest that you do, is if you have concerns about this issue one way or another, you communicate directly with your senator at 202-224-3121, Again, that's 202-224-3121, and let them know in a respectful way what you think ought to be done about Senator Booker's contempt for the rule of law, contempt for the Senate, and contempt for our constitutional system. And uh, you should also let them know what you think about what should be done about Judge Kavanaugh. He's facing a big vote, both uh, next week at the committee and then subsequently in the Senate. And there are a lot of uh, senators on both parties who are under pressure from the radical left, some of which is, um, again, quasi-violent. And if, you know, your senator is, uh, you think, going to vote not the way you want them to vote, call them up and let them know what you wanted them to do. And also, importantly, if your senator is going to support Judge Kavanaugh, or vote the way, maybe, you know, because if you don't want Judge Kavanaugh to be approved, feel free to call your senator or let them know. That's fair. But uh, this is a good rule of thumb. If the senator is doing what you want him to do, call them and thank them. If they're on the fence, call them and thank them for keeping an open mind. And if they're not going to do what, they're go- what you want them to do, call them and let them know that you disagree with them as a constituent and you'll hold them accountable as best you're able to under the law and in the community. So as citizens, this is your chance to have your voice heard. Let your senators know about what the ethics process should be on the Hill with respect to uh, the avowed outlaw, Senator Booker and let your senators know about what should be done with Judge Kavanaugh. And as I'm coming out here today now, there's more dishonesty out of the Democratic uh, side of the aisle uh, opposed to Judge Kavanaugh. And, you know, I don't say, I don't like to do Republican versus Democrat, because my view is, I mean, I know there's partisan here, and Judicial Watch is nonpartisan, but this is leftist. This is the leftist approach uh, to uh, trying to destroy uh, people they disagree with. I mean, they should just say, we don't agree with Judge Kavanaugh, and so we're going to oppose him. But that is never good enough, as they did with Judge Bork and what they tend to do with Clarence Thomas. They have to destroy them in order to justify their votes against them. So that's what I mean by dishonesty. And to this end, Senator Feinstein made a big show, despite getting this letter reportedly in September from someone who wanted to remain anonymous, uh, I guess a girl who was in high school with Judge Kavanaugh or high school age with Judge Kavanaugh and alleges that Judge Kavanaugh engaged in some type of misconduct. The person wants to remain anonymous, doesn't want to be interviewed. Judge Kavanaugh adamantly denies the allegation. 
So what's to be done about it? Now, Feinstein received this letter back in the summer. Why didn't she question Judge Kavanaugh about it at the hearings or even in the closed-door session? And it's this sort of, this is the, this is the reason that people don't want to run for office or seek appointed office, because this is the game that goes on when, um, and, and sometimes Republicans uh, pull this as well. It really is blood sport. And um, Judge Kavanaugh is having his name dragged through the mud based on allegations from high school uh, by one person that by all accounts yet hasn't been supported by anyone. And, and how do you defend yourself against allegations like that from when you're in high school? You know, I was telling one of my colleagues um, about the Judge uh, Thomas hearings, uh, Clarence Thomas's hearings, and he said, was that before your time? And I, I had to admit, I'm old enough to remember the Clarence Thomas hearings. I was watching them, too. I was here in D.C., and I saw what the left did there, tried to do to Judge Thomas, and it was unsuccessful. So I don't know what's going to happen with Judge Kavanaugh, given the latest craziness that's going on with Senator Feinstein. I suspect his nomination will, continue, will, will go through. And you can see why it is perhaps this allegation erupted or uh, came out at the last minute, because they saw that they had failed to destroy Kavanaugh at the confirmation hearings, even though uh, they, were, they broke the rules, uh, their leftist allies uh, committed acts of violence and disruption and criminality in the hearings, putting themselves at risk, the police at risk and innocent bystanders at risk. That didn't work. And Kavanaugh was facing, relatively speaking, in a closely, uh, in a close Senate where you have just uh, one or two more Republicans than Democrats, he was facing clear sailing. And then boom, this anonymous allegation comes out. It's really terrible stuff, and uh, this is why it's important you let your views know, be known to your senators as to what should go on uh, with Judge Kavanaugh. Also in the news this week is uh, new struck page materials. Congress was able to get supposedly uh, the IG uh, or, or the State, excuse me, Justice Department and FBI found new page struck text messages that confirm uh, uh, basically as the frank uh, a media leak strategy. Struck literally writes, "We have a media leak strategy." Now Struck's lawyer says, and this is all of course about leaking stuff about. Uh, the Trump team, specifically the Carter Page FISA warrant, which at the time its very existence was classified. When we asked for the information about the Carter Page FISA warrant, you know what the government told us? We can't confirm or deny it because it's classified. Yet the Obama gang leaked it to the New York Times, it looks like, and to the Washington Post. So you have essential confirmation that there was uh, that, that the deep state under the Obama administration at the top levels was in a desperate effort to leak information, including classified information, to derail the Trump campaign. Again, this is at the same time, remember, they're protecting Hillary Clinton from the consequences of her illicit activity with emails and the resulting national security crimes. So these text messages are dribbling out, and uh, 
as I was, I meant, I, as I started to say, uh, these text messages are only coming out now because they were supposedly found, because they initially were not, they were lost. And you may recall, I said, don't believe that they're lost. They're just been being hidden, which I, I suspect is still the case. And of course, Judicial Watch is on it independently. Congress just gets what it gets, and they gotta be happy with it. But when you're in court, like Judicial Watch is, you're holding at least the agencies to account for any withholdings, to make sure the search has been appropriate, and uh, just making sure there's regular order in the way the agencies are producing records, as opposed to the political circus that goes on in fights between the executive branch and the legislative branch. You see that with the lawlessness of Senator Booker on the congressional side and the lawlessness of the DOJ and the FBI in withholding information and subpoenaed information from the House. It goes on both sides. It's, 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 uh, this is why Judicial Watch is your best bet for government accountability and transparency, at least at this stage of the game. Because we're right in the middle, we're just using the courts and, being, and we're on equal footing with the uh, agencies in getting records. And to that end, we've sued for all struck page messages and, and emails and things like that. Now, the government, this, this Justice Department and FBI, are slow rolling the release of these records to Judicial Watch. They want incredibly up to the year 2020 to release them all. At least the release the documents they want to release to us. Then the fight begins as to what they withheld. So it's even worse than that. If this Justice Department and this FBI get their way, and right now they are getting their way, we will be fighting about page-struck emails and text messages in the second Trump administration or whichever administration, in case he loses, follows on. That's the outrageous obstruction. And you can bet Congress will be facing the same circumstances. And this is why we've got to accelerate the transparency. And now we know why they don't want to give us the records, because they just gave us a few more records. I think 47 pages of records. Congratulations, Jeff Sessions and Director Ray, for getting us 47 pages of records about the most significant employees the Justice Department and the FBI have had in the last 20 or 30 years in the center of two major criminal investigations, the Russiagate scandal, or non-scandal, and the Clinton email scandal. So 47 pages, and they show not so much what Page and Strzok were doing, but what the leadership of the FBI were doing, because according to the documents, they show that you had top leadership of the FBI communicating about sensitive matters on personal devices, unsecure devices. James, uh, excuse me, uh, one document has um, uh, the general counsel, Jim Baker, says that he's attempting, the general counsel for the FBI, Jim Baker, saying that he's attempting to work on his document regarding the sensitive national security matter on his smartphone. He's right, so, so is it not possible to read the red lines on my smartphone? If you're still at the office, can you save the red line version as a PTF and re then resend thanks? So this guy didn't really know how to look at the document on his smartphone. And, you know, anyone who has a smartphone knows sometimes it's hard to look at word process documents and edits and things like that. 
And Strzok writes to Page in all caps, and God, and God, you know what, given everything going on, why is blank, protecting the person, the FBI is, using a Yahoo account for this? Of course, Yahoo had been breached every, it seems like it's breached every year in terms of um, having their emails hacked. Actually, apparently a Yahoo account from the guy's iPad. Make him stop. And then he writes six exclamation points. So Peter Strzok, they're in the middle of this. This is January 30, 2016. They're kind of in the middle of the Clinton email thing. Because they knew what was going on with the Clinton email thing. Because you didn't know about it. The FBI knew about it. The Justice Department knew about it. The State Department knew about it. These unsecured devices. And Strzok later writes, and this shows Strzok's unprofessionalism, um, that there were uh, a bunch of folks who were not read in to secure uh, secret, top secret materials. And so he's basically talking to his girlfriend, Lisa Page, on these messages about this serious matter. And Page responds, Oh, it's so cute that you think this is the first time you've been wrong. No reason to disrupt the fantasy now. The sad truth of reality will come crushing down soon enough. And what was going on at the FBI that these two were talking like this to each other? No one knew, no one knew about the relationship? I want to talk a little bit more about this relationship that Lisa Page had with Peter Strzok. Because we talked about the bias against Trump and the bias against Hillary, uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton the two had, the insurance policy, the media leak strategy now, we're going to stop Trump, uh, their supporters smell, things like that. You know, Strzok and other FBI people had those attitudes at the top levels. But Lisa Page was a lawyer in the FBI, worked for the number two official, Andrew McCabe, who had his own different set of problems that Judicial Watch has exposed separately, that Judicial Watch exposed, not Congress. We forced it out of the FBI and DOJ, and now he's been fired and facing criminal prosecution, potentially. But Lisa Page was a top lawyer in the FBI. And as a top lawyer, she owed an obligation, as a matter of ethics, to her client, the FBI. Well, Peter Strzok had his own little angle going. And any ideas that Peter Strzok had that he was giving to Lisa Page, that in the ordinary course, Lisa Page would consider as counsel for the FBI, she was conflicted out of in considering as a result of her relationship with Peter, Peter Strzok. And she didn't tell anyone, you betcha, in uh, uh, either, I don't know if she told McCabe, I doubt, I doubt she told McCabe, but th- that, was a, that was an insurmountable conflict of interest for her. So she and Peter Strzok were an illicit team getting things done together. And did it include the dossier? Did it include getting national security letters to gather up the phone records of the Trump campaign? Did it include sending spies to target the Trump people? 
That conflict of interest is as a result of that personal relationship. So everyone jokes about you know, her lover, his lover, and all of that, and it's inappropriate. And, well, it's more than inappropriate. It's compromised the investigations and the work they did together. Because both her recommendations to him and his recommendations for her couldn't be fairly evaluated by either of them because of their personal relationship. So uh, that's something to think about. And remember, that's even worse than you know about what was going on in the FBI. And um, again, Judicial Watch is getting these emails out. Uh, you see this unprofessionalism, the security keystone cop approach they had uh, as it relates to cybersecurity at the FBI. And then Struck himself, he jokes about the uh, complaining about not getting mail on time. And then he jokes about the Melwood mail system, Melwood, M-E-L-W-O-O-D. Now, if you're a Washingtonian, you know what Melwood is. Melwood is advertises on the, on, on the radio a lot. And Melwood is a, um, a nonprofit organization that places developmentally disabled uh, individuals in work, uh, you know, gets them jobs and helps them try to live independently admirable activities. And this guy, Peter Strzok, is making fun of Melwood that helps you know, basically just calling, uh, making fun of the developmentally disabled people who were working at the time in the FBI on their, in their mail system. That's Peter Strzok for you. Uh, so this is the sort of stuff that's coming out because of Judicial Watch. We're going to get more you know, there's no guarantee Congress gets anything, but at least with this process, however slow it is, there's a guarantee we get it as well. But there is a guarantee that we will get it. And to that end, we've had the scandal of the Wiener laptop documents that has been coming out. Judicial Watch exposed last week through another lawsuit that uh, Peter Strzok, again, and James Comey were in the middle of the uh, uh, Wiener laptop cover-up. The uh, laptop was exposed uh, in September as having emails from the Clinton email server on the Wiener laptop. Of course, Anthony Wiener married to Yuma Abedin, Hillary Clinton's top aide, who had an email account on the Clinton email server. And uh, what happened was that Strzok and company covered that up for a month. And they basically swept it under the rug, as Peter, as Paul Sperry reported. They only looked at um, a small portion of the 650,000 emails that were on the system. So what Judicial Watch did is we, filed up, we followed up with a lawsuit against the FBI and the Justice Department for anything found by the FBI, as a result of the FBI subpoena of the Wiener laptop. So this subpoena was issued back, I think, in uh, 2016. We want to know what else is there, because we can't trust everything has been looked at and turned over. Again, it was a judicial watch lawsuit that found that there were classified documents from the Hillary Clinton email server on the Wiener laptop, which would have been enough to get anyone, arrest, anyone else arrested, but not Hillary Clinton or Yuma Abedin. And now we know and think that there's other material there, so we've sued about both the cover-up and the documents that are really on the Wiener laptop that are government documents that we have a right to. I can't watch doing this.
Congress isn't. Do you think Congress wants Anthony Weiner anywhere near what they're doing? Of course not. Uh, so Judicial Watch is going to find out what else is on the Anthony Weiner laptop that Hillary Clinton, Peter Strzok, and James Comey don't want you to know about. And we're in federal court doing it. So it's just great work. I mean, I say this, I'm president of Judicial Watch. Of course, I'm going to say it's great work. But objectively speaking, it is great work, isn't it? Because I know no one else is doing it. I know no one else is doing it. Uh, I want to talk briefly before I get into Obama and Benghazi on the hurricane. Um, I want to make sure I've got everything else. Uh, the, uh, the president got into some, um, well, let's, it's the typical media hysteria in response to a, a fair point raised by the president of the United States. Uh, and in this case, it's Donald Trump. And I recall a few weeks ago, I noticed there was a, G a George Washington University study that um, of the death toll in Puerto Rico. Now, the official death toll in Puerto Rico as of a month ago was 64, and it's based on death certificates. You know, drowning, tree fell on you, electrocution. You can just imagine the various ways that uh, these poor people may have died as a result of the hurricane. But 64 wasn't enough, evidently, for the left that is trying uh, to score political points and potentially money uh, in terms of government spending. So the GW did this academic study, and I, and I noticed the news because the study suggested that 3,000 people died in Puerto Rico. And the Puerto Rican government, which is controlled by the left, immediately changed the number of the death toll from 64 to 3,000. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that looks like a scam. I've got to figure out what's going on. So I went and recently with the hurricane coming up the, uh, down in North Carolina and South Carolina, and I pray for you all suffering the effects now, uh, they started using this number again, about 3,000. It came back in the news. And I said, well, let me go look at this GW study. So the study is available online. You can Google it and, or, um, or Bing it or whatever. The, uh, I don't like to say Google anymore, given it's leftist, it's leftist hatred for conservatives. The, uh, the GW study, their analysis is as follows, that uh, in the months after a hurricane, up to almost a year later, uh, you can expect a certain number of people to die in the ordinary course. But based on our statistical analysis, it looks like more than the expected number of people died subsequent to the hurricane. And the number they came up with was a little under 3,000. Well, as a demographic analysis, statistical analysis, mathematical educated guess, I'm not going to argue with it. One could easily surmise that people died for reasons having nothing to do with Hurricane Maria after six months later. I mean, this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But if they want to make the argument, look, there were more people dead in the months immediately after the hurricane, and they should be fairly attributed as deaths associated with the hurricane, let them make that academic case. But then for the government to come in and say, Oh, as a result of this one academic guess, we're going to say there were 3,000 people who were killed, when in fact that was not the case? 
And of course, it makes a certain amount of sense. One can understand that maybe more than 64 people died, and the study makes the interesting case that sometimes the death certificates are wrong. Someone may die, for instance, their dialysis machine goes kaput because of lack of power in the days after a hurricane, and it's listed as dying because of the dialysis, you know, the kidney failure, when in fact it's really the hurricane that killed them because but for that they'd be alive. It's far different matter to say six months later that mortality is increased on matters that are far removed potentially from a hurricane and for purposes of government numbers say that is a death associated with the hurricane. Come on. But in theory, that's an academic, uh, an academic debate, which is fine. But I'm concerned about the corruption of the Puerto Rican government, which we are now investigating, changing, fudging the numbers. And of course, President Trump called all of this out in his inimical way, in his tweets, basically calling it a scam as well. And they're saying he falsely claimed there were not 3,000 deaths in, in, in Puerto Rico. There is no basis to say, because the numbers are not there, that there were 3,000 deaths in, in, in Puerto Rico. They're simply not true. The death certificates that government relies on to figure out how many people died in the hurricane say there were 64. The 3,000 is a made-up number that at best is a statistical guess. I mean, you could get an academic to come up with three million, and who knows? You draw it out long enough, if you draw it out far enough, you could get to tens of thousands of deaths. And it shows you that when it comes to government corruption, you can't trust, you just gotta really look behind the headlines. And when you see the government change a number from 64 to 3,000, you've got to have the alarm bells go off. And of course, the alarm bells went off at Judicial Watch, and that's why, as we speak, there's a FOIA traveling to San Juan, Puerto Rico, asking about that decision-making. So I, I, you know, I, I normally don't like to talk about the kind of the silly attacks on President Trump over his tweeting, but this is, you know, this is something where he was right, and... Not only that, but the media is promoting what in effect is a, a corrupt move by the Puerto Rican government to inflate the death toll without adequate basis. So something else that went on, and I, forgive me for going on about this, but this is important. This is the, this is, uh, the anniversary week, week of the 9-11 attacks, uh, uh, both on 9-11-2001 and 9-11-2012 Benghazi. And... Um, I want to talk about Benghazi in particular because uh, President Obama is back in the news because he's out campaigning for Democrats, which is his God-given right as an American. So he can do whatever he wants in that regard. But he talked about and he criticized those who embrace Benghazi conspiracy theories, which um, I think blew the top of many Americans who understand the lies he and his colleagues, like Hillary Clinton, engaged in and the cover-up on Benghazi. Now, the Benghazi attack occurred on September 11, 2012, 
a pretty good indication that it was a terrorist attack. And indeed, the documents that Judicial Watch has uncovered show it was a terrorist attack, and the government knew about it. The Obama administration knew about it. Hillary Clinton's State Department knew about it from the get-go. So I want to talk about these alleged conspiracy theories that Obama's talking about. I don't even know what they are. So I presume is that they knew that it was an attack, they knew it was an attack but lied to the American people as a conspiracy theory. Well, Judicial Watch has the documents that prove that because Judicial Watch is the one that has done the most significant investigation into Benghazi. And yes, I include congressional investigations in comparison. Ours were more, was more substantial, it was independent, and it was unafraid. In fact, there would have been no Benghazi Select Committee but for Judicial Watch's investigation exposing White House involvement in the big lie behind Benghazi. And this is the big release. I have it here. I remember it. Four years ago, April 29, 2014, the headline of the release, Judicial Watch, Benghazi documents point to White House on misleading talking points. Now, you may recall Susan Rice, Nash, uh, then White House, no, then UN ambassador for Hillary. Hillary didn't go out on the, on the talk show circuit after 9-11, the Benghazi 9-11. They sent Susan Rice, and she lied in every talk show saying that a video made him do it. It was a spontaneous demonstration rooted in an internet video. Now, it turns out, and they knew at the time, it was a terrorist attack, a coordinated planned terrorist attack. But um, the government, or, or the Obama administration, blamed it on the intelligence. The intelligence said it was a video. Well, there is no. We found the documents. There, are no, there was no intelligence telling it was saying it was a video. Now, the problem the Obama administration had at the time was Obama was running for office, and one of his campaign themes was that Osama bin Laden is dead, GM is alive. So he's taking credit for rescuing the car companies, you know, that socialist idea, and taking credit for having Obama killed. I mean, Osama killed. Fine. It's a fine campaign slogan. But it's severely undermined when our ambassador is killed and three other innocents are killed. There's a lower-level State Department official there, a young guy who was killed with Ambassador Stevens, and two contractors, I think former Special Forces, were killed several hours later. And it was Judicial Watch who broke open the Benghazi scandal with this document I'm telling you about in this press release, because it was a White House document sent to the State Department prepping Susan Rice with her talking points for her Sunday talk show appearances. Again, it wasn't the intelligence community doing this. It was the White House political operation, specifically a, a document created by the White House deputy strategic communication advisor, Ben Rhodes. Now, Ben Rhodes wrote they, that they were, the documents show he was orchestrating a campaign to reinforce Barack Obama and to portray the Benghazi consulate terrorist attack, it wasn't even a consulate, it was a special mission compound, as being, quote, rooted in an internet video and not a failure of policy. And the Rhodes email was sent with the subject line, prep call with Susan, Saturday, 4 p.m., which was the day before she went on every talk show, every Sunday talk show, and lied about it being internet video. 
it tied it to the White House. Now, you had five congressional investigations looking for stuff like this. They weren't able to find it, but Judicial Watch found this document, and it blew it open. Boehner was furious, John Boehner, speaker at the time. He didn't want to do a select committee, but he caved because he was, he caved because of the public outrage, but he was also personally ticked because he was made to look like a fool by the Obama White House who withheld this from them. And it was Judicial Watch that got this document. And in response to this very document I'm telling you about, Boehner created the Select Committee on Benghazi. The document that I'm telling you about lists as a goal the underscore that these protests are rooted in an internet video and not a broader failure or policy. So the goal was blame the video and not Obama. It's even worse than blame the video and not the terrorists. Blame the video and not Obama. But the former president would tell you, reading this, is that a conspiracy theory to say they were lying about what was going on and it was a political response, not a truthful response? Of course not. I want to tell you about another conspiracy theory. Again, it's not a conspiracy theory, it's factual. Because many people are concerned arms were going out of Benghazi. Well, we have the documents showing the Obama administration no arms were going out of Benghazi. I mean, this is the headline in this one release. This is probably the most... There were a lot of significant releases on the Benghazi, but I, I think, you know, as I look back at all the work we do, this may be one of the most important releases that Judicial Watch has ever issued. Obviously, this Talking Points one was a big one. This one is a bigger one in many ways. Defense State Department documents reveal Obama administration knew that al-Qaeda terrorists had planned Benghazi attack 10 days in advance. Subheadline, administration knew three months before the November 12, 2000 presidential election of ISIS plans to establish a caliphate in Iraq tied to Benghazi. Administration knew of arms being shipped from Benghazi to Syria. This release was issued in May of 2015. You probably haven't read about it or heard about it on CBS, NBC, or CNN, or ABC. I mean, these are smoking gun documents. State, the documents show that the DOD, almost, the Department of Defense, almost immediately reported that the attack on the U.S. The Benghazi compound was committed by the Al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood. There's still a debate whether to designate Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. We've got documents tying them to the, to the 9-11 Benghazi attack. Called Brigades of the Captive of Omar Abdul Rahman. Now, he's the infamously known... Uh, he's known as the Blind Sheik. He was behind the 1993 terrorist attack on the Trade Center. The documents also provide the official confirmation that shows the U.S. knows, first official confirmation, U.S. knew about arms shipments out of Syria, out of Benghazi and Libya to Syria. And the documents include an incredible warning about the uh, emergence of ISIS that, of course, was ignored. Document shows the Defense Department document I'm telling you about. The goal of the terrorist attack, this is dated on September 12, 2012. The goal of this terrorist group was to kill as many Americans as possible. 
and they're blaming it on the video. This is the intelligence they were seeing it, and they were lying to you. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Susan Rice said it was a video. Specifically, the attack was planned 10 or more days prior on approximately September 1, 2012. The intention was to attack the consulate and to kill as many Americans as possible to seek revenge for the U.S. killing of uh, Al-Ibi, I don't know how to pronounce it, in Pakistan, an al-Qaeda leader, and in memorial of the the September 11, 2001, attacks in the World Trade Centers. I said, they written, this was written the day after the Benghazi attack. And just think back to this document and the document I told you about by Ben Rhodes saying, we got to blame it on an internet video and not a broader failure of policy. First, first official documentation of arms going out. Another report from this one from which agency? A Department of Defense document. And you can read these all online. I don't know if we can get all links up to them. But you can read them all online. An October 2012 report confirms, during the immediate aftermath of and following the uncertainty caused by the downfall of the Al-Khafi regime in October 2011, and up until early September of 2012, Benghazi attack, weapons from the former Libya military stockpiles located in Benghazi Libya were shipped from the point of Benghazi, Libya, to the ports of Benias and the port of Borj Islam, Syria. The DI, and this is the Defense Intelligence Agency document, so this is a pretty serious agency. This is the, the, the intelligence agency for our military. It's better than the CIA. The weapons shipped from Syria during the late August 2012 period were sniper rifles, RPGs, and 125 millimeter and 155-millimeter Harwitzer missiles. The numbers for each weapon were estimated to be 500 sniper rifles, 100 RPG launchers, and 300, with 300 total rounds, and approximately 400 Harwitzer, missile, Harwitzer missiles, 200 each, 125-millimeter, and 200 each, 155-millimeter. Now, the document is unclear as to whether they could have stopped this transition, or this, these shipments, or whether they even were running them. But the level of specificity shows that they were essentially in the room, or had someone in the room to get these numbers. So that so-called conspiracy theory about arms being run at Benghazi into Syria, true. And then we have the linkage of Benghazi and the Libya deterioration, the failure of policy, and the rise of ISIS. Because essentially what happened is that after they murdered, or allowed to be murdered, Muammar Gaddafi, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama did, uh, Libya collapsed as a civil society, or what to a degree it was even a civil society. And all the terrorists rushed in and it became a way station for radicalism to other parts of the Middle East, including Syria, and the coming conflagration there. This report was written in 2012. Said the opposition in Syria was driven by Al-Qaeda and other extremist Muslim groups, 
the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda Iraq were the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria. The growing sectarian direction of the war was predicted to have dire consequences for Iraq, which included the grave danger of the rise of ISIS. And essentially what was happening is that um, the borders of Iraq and Syria, the military forces of both nations at the government level, were pulling back. And into that gap, they recognized that you were going to have al-Qaeda in Iraq step into the gap, and it provided an opportunity for ISI should, this is a quote, could also declare Islamic State through its union with other terrorist organizations in Iraq and Syria, which will create grave dangers in regard to unifying Iraq and the protection of its territory. Holy moly. They knew about what was going to go happen in Syria in 2012, and they knew it was going to happen as a result of the activities of, according to this document, of the groups that the United States under Barack Obama were supporting and the rest of the West were supporting. And this document was giving it to us in response to a request about documents about Benghazi. So it ties Benghazi to all of this as well. So yes, ISIS, arms in Syria, lies about video, all exposed by Judicial Watch. And this is why people get upset when Obama says people embrace conspiracy theories. They're not conspiracy theories. He's upset because people know the truth as a result of Judicial Watch about his lies and Hillary Clinton's cover-up. And this is, this is the one that's going to really get you mad. We found this in December of 2015. 2015, three years after the attack. New Benghazi email shows DOD offered State Department forces that could move to Benghazi immediately. You heard that right. So the other conspiracy theory is that the military could have gone to the rescue, but they were not allowed. Well, in fact, that's what happened. What had happened in Benghazi was there were two attacks. There was the attack initially on the, con on the special mission compound that led to the death of Ambassador Stevens and his colleague from the State Department. And then five or six hours later, there was an attack at the CIA annex, which was about a mile or so away. And that led to the deaths of the two operators on the roof there. Now, according to this document, that second attack, we could have had military forces helping those people there, and lives could have been saved. Because this is what happened. At 7 o'clock, an email was sent to the top leadership of the, of the State Department. State colleagues, I just tried you on the phone, but you were all with all in with S, meaning Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State. After consulting with General Dempsey, General Ham, and the Joint Staff, we have identified the forces that could move the Benghazi. They were spinning up as we speak. Spinning up as we speak. Means they were ready to go. All they needed was the green light. They include A, and then they redacted with the forces that were available. Assuming principles 
agree to this deploy, agree to deploy these elements, we will ask state to procure the approval from host nation. Please advise how you wish to convey the approval to us. Well, we now know what happened. They were never sent. In fact, they were delayed. They didn't get in there late until uh, special forces uh, traveled to Benghazi from Tripoli on their own initiative. Other military assets were only used to recover the dead and wounded and to evacuate U.S. personnel. In fact, they only had one plane available to move our people out of Benghazi. They had to leave some some people behind because they didn't have enough people, uh, enough planes to take everyone out at once. Unbelievable. So, another conspiracy theory. We could have sent people to get there in time. Our military was ready to go. Leadership of the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, failed to utilize them. In fact, when they finally did arrive, I, I, don't, I don't have the specifics in this release, but I recall pretty specifically, you may double-check me on this, but you'll fight, figure it out exactly what's right, is that there was a delay in deploying troops because they didn't want to have them in military uniforms. Because they were embarrassed. They didn't want to agitate the Libyans any further. So forgive me for going on a little bit, but I am angry about what happened in Benghazi. I'm still angry about it. We lost people unnecessarily, and our government's been lying about it ever since. And believe it or not, we are still fighting for Benghazi records. We're still fighting from this State Department on Benghazi records. So, I mean, those four men who died there, uh, you know, their families, I wish them the best. Uh, but I'm also thinking of those who deployed militarily overseas or civilian personnel deployed overseas. Don't think this hasn't impacted them. Because the promise had been, you know, if things go to hell in a handbasket, we'll have our people there to protect and save you and rescue you in a timely fashion. And that promise was thrown out the window as a result of Benghazi and the refusal to hold anyone accountable for the failure to keep that commitment we give to our people that we send overseas on our behalf. It harms not only the morale of those deployed overseas, the morale of their family left behind. And you may think because five years, six years have passed that people have forgotten this. They haven't forgotten it. You can bet the Special Forces community hasn't forgotten it. You can bet anyone deployed overseas in the Middle East hasn't forgotten what happened in Benghazi. And it's one extra worry these fine men and women have as they're facing the difficult job of, of uh, trying to protect themselves from the terrorist threat abroad. So Judicial Watch, I'm really proud of this investigation. There's a lot more we've uncovered. I encourage you to get our book, Clean House, which exposes more of it. And, of course, we have all of our material online. So, uh, you know, as the rest of Washington uh, you know, talks about meaningless things, these is, this is the work that we're doing, trying to get the word out about this egregious, egregious scandal that, that broke the bond 
that um, our civilian government had with the military in terms of uh, protecting our personnel deployed overseas. Because those guys, the special forces, they're retired and they were CIA contractors, but you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I've never been in the military. But these guys don't consider themselves always part of the special forces community, and we left them behind. Unbelievable. And Judicial Watch exposed it. Congress didn't expose it. The media didn't expose it. And we had to drag it out of the Justice, out of the State Department and the Defense Department and other agencies to figure out what went on. So uh, this is why you should support Judicial Watch, because no one else is, does this type of work. So there's your big Benghazi update, and uh, there's a lot more coming out next week, I can tell you. New lawsuits, new documents, and uh, if you want to know about what's really going on here in the swamp, tune in to the Judicial Watch weekly update and our other programming uh, and updates uh, both online and on air. Thanks for joining us. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.